Jason, again, I'm so grateful you're here. Yeah. Uh, Jason's been part of the Portland Metro Network and the work of the Alliance Northwest in, in, in Portland for how long now? Oh, yeah. 2003, we, we came to Portland from Seattle, my wife and, and at the time, two children. We, we came to Portland to help start a church called Mosaic. And then um, we were there for a lot of years and we were part of planting Mosaic or uh, Missio yeah. and some others. So, yeah, long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had the privilege of knowing Jason through all my years as a lead and even prior to that, just through yeah. Metro Network and events for prayer and gathering and pastor encouragement and then even doing some missional work together. Um, what are you doing now? What, what God's called you to in this season? Yeah. So now we're we're in the process of planting a new church in Vancouver, uh, downtown Vancouver, not uh, British Columbia. Even people in Portland don't know there's a Vancouver closer than the one in Canada. Uh, but there is. It's just across the Columbia. And um, we're planting a, a new church there. It was, it was actually a, a, a Portland Metro Network church that closed yeah. uh, two years ago. So many of you know about or have heard of Compass Church. Compass closed its doors during the pandemic. And, um, and there were about 35 people left. And they had a building and a little bit of money. And they said, you know, we're, we know we're done with this iteration of our church. But we don't think we're done. Mm. You know, we know this part's done, yeah. but... And so they agreed, they worked with the Alliance Northwest and agreed to, to replant the church. So I started about 10 months ago. Okay. Yeah, April. What's, what's the name of the new church that you're planting? Main Street Church. Main Street Church. Yeah, downtown yeah. Vancouver. Okay. New Tell, vision, new values, everything, yeah. yeah. Tell me one of the highlights that you've seen in this season. Just one of the things that you're praising God for. Yeah, the church, I, when I, I, I've been a part of church planting for a while. And when I showed up there, I said to them, I said, I don't, I don't have a big agenda. I don't have a huge plan. I said, I want, to, I want us to pray this church into existence. Yeah. And um, so I committed to not digging into my old bag of tricks yeah. of like ways we've done it in the past. Well, Holy Spirit, what do you have for us in this new season as we, as we start a new church? And um, the church has responded so well to that, man. We are truly a praying community. Hmm. Um, and that's probably the most encouraging thing, man. People are praying like crazy. Awesome. And and uh, and we see new people coming and yeah it's very encouraging very awesome. encouraging season cool yeah. well to that end I want to pray for you I want to Thank pray you. for Main Street I want to pray just for you bringing the word this morning and then uh, let you open up the word and awesome. continue in our in our series cool thanks all right yeah. Missy if you're if you're willing would you extend your hand we're gonna pray yeah for Jason for Main Street and then just for our own hearts prepare to receive the word this morning so God we thank you this morning for who you are we thank you that. Um, whether it's this church or any other church, Jesus, you actually are the head and the Lord and the lead of, of every church. And so this morning we, we submit to you uh, as we come together. We acknowledge you as Lord and King, as Savior, as friend, and we thank you for your love and your faithfulness and your pursuit of us. God, thank you for Jason and his faith. Thank you for uh, the new work that you've birthed in his heart and um, that you're birthing through Main Street Church. God, we pray you'd bless them. Would you strengthen them? Would you uh, remind them of just your goodness and of your faithfulness to them. And God, would you empower them by your spirit to uh, share the reality of the life and goodness of the gospel with people in Vancouver and beyond. God, thank you that they're a praying church. And we're thankful that you're, you're a God that listens and a God that hears, and you're a God that works. And I, I pray that their prayers wouldn't be just them speaking, but them also listening and hearing you speak and you guiding and directing their steps uh, in, into what you're calling them to be and how you would have them manifest the gospel in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And so pray for Jason's ears, his heart, his mind to be open uh, and moldable by you and that every person at Main Street would be like-minded in that and just that you would speak uh, vision and courage and wisdom 
uh, and empower them again, Jesus, to carry the gospel uh, into Vancouver and beyond. And God, this morning, I pray similar for each of us as we open up your word. Um, yeah, God, would you let it bear the fruit that you desire for it to? Your word says that your word does not go out uh, void, but it fulfills the purpose which it's sent. And so, God, would each of our hearts and our minds this morning be good soil for your word to fall on? Um, would you speak uh, from your heart to ours through Jason this morning? Uh, bless him in this and uh, bless us as we receive your word by faith. Uh, we love you, Jesus. And uh, yeah, speak to your children are listening. Amen. Amen. Thanks, bro. Yeah. Thanks for praying that too about God's word not coming back void because that, that's actually a prayer I prayed this week, man. So we didn't talk about that, but uh, that, that scripture has been on my heart. A little, a small group of us prayed over, I think it's Isaiah 55.10. And I don't, wouldn't have known that off the top of my head, but except we did it this week. And um, it's a powerful image of like a river, and like water coming out of the heavens and raining and then, and then filling rivers and, and the rivers going out and, and um, you know, uh, bringing irrigation to the land so that it can grow stuff. And that's what God's Word does. God's Word, when it's read and spoken, and when we submit ourselves to it, it actually produces and bears fruit in our lives. And that's really my prayer uh, going into this morning. So may God, may God do that. I agree with the prayer. Um, so, yeah, Dom, Dom mentioned that he asked me to preach a few months ago. And... Uh, and I was like, awesome. Yeah, I'd love to come and preach at Missio. Missio's, you know, it's like you guys are sort of cousins in a, in a way to, to me because, um, because of all the connections through Portland Metro Network. And um, so he invited me to preach, and I was like, yeah, I would love that. And then he told me my text was going to be Jesus carrying his cross. And I was like, seriously, bro? Like, can you give me something better than that? You know, like something, I was, I heard it, and he was like, and I was like, that's, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> Honestly, I was like, that sounds super depressing. Remember that guy, that, the guest speaker that came and spoke? Yeah, dude, that guy was a downer, right? Like, but um, I'm really excited about this talk because I think that the, the Jesus carrying His cross, this idea that Jesus bore the cross on His shoulders and He carried it through Jerusalem out to Golgotha, that imagery, that reality of what Jesus did for us has the power to, to change our lives and the Holy Spirit's going to speak to us because His, His Word doesn't come back void, right? So, so I believe that God's going to use this text to, to bear fruit in our lives. Now, um, the, the calling of, of cross-bearing and, and Jesus fulfilling it, and then Jesus actually asking us, what did He say one of the conditions of discipleship was? To take up your cross every day and follow Him. I believe, and what we're going to see as we open this text today, is that cross-carrying, both Jesus' cross-carrying and our cross-carrying, makes us more like Him. Cross-carrying, both Jesus' cross-carrying and our cross-carrying, makes us more like Him. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John 19, and it's going to be on the screen as well. But I want to read this to you. And... Uh, I think probably my friend John Chang can appreciate this. Um, and I use reading glasses now when I read the Bible. John 19, where are we starting? Verse 6, verse six is, uh, verses 6 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was that day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, or to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. This is the word of the Lord. So, the first thing you notice in the text is that Jesus almost didn't carry his cross, right? Because if Pilate had anything to do with it, he wouldn't have. Uh, Pilate, as, as the Roman governor, as the guy who was in charge of execution, as the guy who was in charge of crucifixion, the, the, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to him, and, Jesus, and Pilate just repeatedly says over, over throughout the story, there's, there's just no basis to crucify this guy. He hasn't broken, he hasn't broken enough law. He hasn't, he hasn't committed a big enough crime that we would hang him on a cross and kill him and execute him. And then the Jewish leaders, on the other hand, they're, they're lobbying right for Jesus to be crucified. They're just driving it home over and over. First, they start with Jewish law. They say, hey, we have a law. We have a law. And Pilate's like, well, I don't, your law really doesn't matter because even if he did break your law, I'm not going to crucify him for what you're saying he did wrong. And so then they appeal to, to Roman law and they say, hey, this guy's making himself out as a threat to Caesar. He, Jesus is saying he's the king and that's a threat to Caesar. We only have one king, Caesar. And so the Jews and, and Pilate are going back and forth and all the while Jesus' response in the whole situation is, Nobody would have power in this situation if God didn't give it to him. I mean, he's a, he's a man at peace, right? He's a man who's at, at, at ease with the situation because he knows God is actually the one in charge and that these authorities that are going back and forth trying to decide on his fate are given their power from God above. And so, Pilate caves in and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And what I want to do this morning is just focus on verse 17. The act of Jesus carrying this cross and the place that He carried the cross to, which we, we saw in the text is called Golgotha. So let's talk about Jesus carrying the cross first. Crucifixion was brutal and humiliating. It was so disgraceful the, the Romans only crucified criminals, slaves, and foreigners. People in Rome, like they didn't crucify their own Roman citizens. Uh, the Roman Empire ruled over a lot of different countries at this time and a lot of different regions, and, and crucifixion was done outside of, outside of you know, Rome. It wasn't, 
it wasn't normal practice because it was so disgraceful. It was so shameful. And so after beating Jesus with a whip, the Roman soldiers would have put a, a wooden cross beam on Jesus' back. And then they paraded Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. We call this the Via Dolorosa, the, the, the way that Jesus went from, from Pilate's, uh, the, the place where he was sentenced to the cross, the Via Dolorosa, the road, it's a series of roads that would have wound through Jerusalem. And it led to Golgotha. And so Jesus is staggering along this road. The cross is digging into his already beaten back. He's being goaded and whipped by the soldiers as they made their way to the edge of the city. Now, typically a member of the procession would have been carrying a sign, perhaps in front of the procession, and the sign would have stated the criminal's uh, offense. So in this case, this could have been the placard that, that got hung on Jesus' cross with him, which said, King of the Jews. And so this whole thing is, is about maximum public disgrace. It's just total humiliation for the criminal, for whoever's being crucified. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's shame. Carrying His cross through Jerusalem would have put Jesus in the ranks of, of the most vile criminal. So in our day, we might think of sex offenders. We might think of child abusers. That's what Jesus is associated with as He walks through the streets of Jerusalem carrying this cross. That's how shameful it is. That's the scorn. That's the anger, the rage that people would have felt towards Him. Maximum public exposure. I think this is uh, partly what Paul was getting at in Philippians 2.8 where he says that Jesus became obedient to death. And, and some of you know this verse, right? He became obedient to death. And what does it say after that? Even death on a cross. This isn't just like a humane you know, execution. This is a disgrace. This is an embarrassment. This is a humiliation. Even death on a cross. Total disgrace. But the real disgrace of the cross is not... Jesus carrying a crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem. The real disgrace of the cross is that humans murdered God. That's disgraceful. It's, it's, not, that, it's not that Jesus was, was so you know, uh, embarrassed and humiliated. It's that, it's that we murdered light. Darkness killed light. And, and what it does is that it, it, it shows the chasm between God's kingdom and, and the earthly kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world, right? It looks like a triumph over, over the earthly kingdoms, over the kingdoms of this world, over, over the kingdom of God. And, and yet here we have Jesus willingly bearing this disgrace, willingly carrying His cross through the streets of Jerusalem, showing the chasm, the difference between these two kingdoms. Because Jesus didn't say a word. He didn't fight back. He didn't shame the ones who were shaming Him even though He had every right to shame the ones who were shaming Him. But He was led, Isaiah says, like a, like a sheep toward slaughter and He didn't say anything. He bore the weight of that disgrace. He carried it. And He let the disgrace speak for itself. For Jesus' disgrace actually real, reveals something. It reveals human disgrace. It reveals our disgrace. Today, friends, i, I got to tell you, um, I'm going to talk about a part of sin that we don't talk about very much. 
And I'm going to warn you today, uh, I'm going to use the S word, and you know what the S word is, it's shame. There's a, a reality that when we sin, shame is involved. And I think we, in the church, uh, we, we tend to, especially in evangelical churches, we tend to like skip over shame pretty fast because we know that God doesn't shame us, right? But we still have to talk about shame because sin is shameful. Sin is disgraceful. Sin reflects poorly on God. When we sin, when we screw up, when we mess up, it reflects poorly on God. And it reflects poorly on the church. It reflects poorly on our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just a fact. We don't have to hide that fact. We actually need to point that out and, and, and recognize it. You see, we, feel, uh, we, we know that sin is shameful. And, and, and just think about this. You know, your Christian cousin who cracks racist jokes, how do you feel when that happens? Right? Or a megachurch pastor who gets exposed in a scandal. Or a respected member of your church who leaves their spouse for somebody new. We don't just feel sad. We don't just feel angry. We cringe. We cringe, don't we? That's shame. Sin is shameful. Yet here's the amazing thing as we look at Jesus carrying shame and being shame heaped on Him as He's, as he's put on public display and He's exposed. The thing that's so incredible is that God doesn't shame us when we bring shame upon Him. God doesn't shame us when we bring shame upon Him. The cross on Jesus' shoulders shows us that He carries our shame. And He dies under our shame. And rather than shaming us when we sin and, and bring disgrace to Christ or to His church, He gently invites us back to grace. God reveals our disgrace to invite us to His grace. God reveals our disgrace to invite us to His grace. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and, and maybe we experience that feeling of, of shame, we cringe and we, we, or we cringe about when we think about somebody else's fall. When that happens and we experience that emotion, it's actually not intended to shame us or to condemn us. It's a gift to us. It's a gift that leads us to repentance. It's a kindness of God to lead us to a place where we can honestly say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. His mercy is an invitation to run back to the Father who is full of grace. So if you struggle with shame, and, and many of us do on some level, Jesus, He gets you. He understands you. And not only does He get you, He extends to you grace. The voice of shame will condemn you. It tells you that you're you're not good enough. It tells you that if people knew the real you, they wouldn't want to be around you. They wouldn't like you. They wouldn't accept you. They'd want nothing to do with you. But the voice of God says, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're fully accepted. You're loved. You are part of the family. For Jesus bore our shame on His shoulders and never shamed us back, but invited us to receive grace.
Now, at some point on his journey through Jerusalem, Jesus put his cross down, and a guy named Simon picked it up and carried it. And that's another talk for another day. Um, I'm not going to talk about that, but I do want to talk about where they ended up. They ended up at Golgotha. They ended up at this place outside of the city of Jerusalem, on the edge of the city, where uh, these people who were being executed by Rome would be killed. Uh, Golgotha was a landmark. Uh, people coming and going from Jerusalem would have, would have known where it is, and they would have walked by, and, and when they saw uh, criminals hanging on crosses there, it would have been this grisly reminder, right, of who was in charge. Rome is in charge. Don't cross Rome. Mind your P's and your Q's. Stay in line, or this will be your fate. Golgotha just kind of brings this public exposure, this public disgrace to its, to its climax, right? Where it's like, this is where you end up. Scorned, shamed, disgraced, just outside of the city. Yet, along his journey to the cross, we, we have these reminders, right? And, and you've been in this series as you guys have, have been journeying with Jesus toward the cross. What's the series called again? You get that? What was it called? Somebody help me out. The Way of the Cross. Thank you, Kelly. Um, as, as, as we've been in this journey and you've been going through this, you, you have these reminders along the way, right? That Jesus, that, that God is actually in charge, even though it looks like, you know, Pilate or the Pharisees or the chief priests are in charge. You have these reminders. And, and this is actually another one of those reminders. Golgotha is actually a reminder that, that God is in charge. I want you to look at Leviticus 16.27. Jesus actually fulfilled Hebrew law by being crucified outside of the city. Look at this, and it's something, it's just amazing how God was working out these details. Leviticus 16.27 says, The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken where? Outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. Leviticus, you know, the Day of Atonement, the, the, the practice of sacrificing an animal to temporarily atone for the sin of the people, um, there was this other part, this part that we never think about, right? Where they actually have to, okay, now they've, 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 uh, you know, they've, they've shed the blood of the lamb and they've, they've put it on the altar. Now they actually got to take the, the body out outside of the city and burn it. And so here Jesus is mirroring this same imagery by being crucified outside of the city. And, and Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, he makes this connection, or she, if, if it was a she that wrote it. It says, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside of the city gate to do what? To make the people holy through His own Blood. So Jesus mirrors the old law in Leviticus by suffering outside of the city. On the surface, it was this display of Roman power, right? It's this display like, oh man, the Romans are in charge and they're bad. Do not cross the Romans. Do not commit a crime while these guys are ruling over Israel. This will be your fate. And yet, 
this fear tactic that Rome uses, this shame tactic, this exposure at Golgotha, these people hanging there on a cross, bloodied and dying. All the while, the Romans are just actors in God's grand story of making people holy. That activity of of going outside of the city and, and dying there and being disgraced there the author of Hebrews says, makes us holy. Wow. Wow. Now, so Christ's submission makes us holy. Christ's submission to this authority makes us holy. Holy means to be set apart from sin. It means to be set apart for God. So I have a question for you. If somebody were to ask you how you think God sees you, would holy be one of your answers? How does God see you? Would you say holy? Now, if you're like me, holy would be down the list of ways. Just being real. Toward the top of the list would be forgiven. How does God see you, Jason? Forgiven. Because I need a lot of that. I need a lot of forgiveness. Holy would be probably toward the bottom. Because holy is not the first thing I think of when I think of myself. I think more of my mistakes. I think more of my sin. I think of more of the ways that I fall short and my need for forgiveness. You see, plenty of Christians know they're forgiven, but fewer of us know that we're holy. That's because holy is something Christ makes us. That's what the text says. God cleanses our sins and He gives us Christ's righteousness. So holiness is actually a gift. It's more like, here you go. I have forgiven you, I have cleansed you, and I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift for you to receive. In faith, you're set apart. (coughs) Excuse me. Always bring your coffee when you preach so you can keep preaching. Now, so there's this gift of holiness that that Jesus gives us. Yet there's another aspect of holiness that we are responsible for. So on one hand, it's a gift. But on the other hand, holiness is not just something we're given. It's something we're becoming. It's a process. As apprentices of of Jesus, following Him means we'll become more like Him. It's not just a passive experience. It's not just something that that we receive. It's actually something we participate in and we work toward. We actually work toward our holiness. It requires effort. It requires obedience. Uh, For example, um, losing weight is something that probably all of us at one time in our lives have thought about or, or tried to do. It's just common in our culture, right? We just got through the new year. Everybody thinks about, you know, a few goals. And for many of us, losing weight, you know, I want to lose a couple pounds or whatever is, is one of our goals. Now, there's, there's different ways to lose weight. One way for a person to lose weight is to have bariatric surgery. So you go to the, your, your, your surgeon, your anesthesiologist puts you to sleep, the surgeon operates, you wake up and you're 100 pounds lighter. 
pretty, it's pretty sweet, right? That's like signing up for a 5K and not having to run the 5K. That's amazing, man. Like, I'll do that all day. Let's go. Yeah, I signed up for a 5K. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's great. You get credit for that. It's cool. But, but that's not actually how it works with holiness, as, as nice as that would be. Yes, God gives us holiness. Yes, He sets us apart. Yes, He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Yes, He sees Jesus when He sees us. But there's a practical side of this that God doesn't typically take away our pride or our lust or our bitterness when we lay on the operating table and do nothing. That's not how that works. It takes effort. It requires obedience on our part. Jesus called people to obedience at different times, and he, he did it in different ways. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus inviting people to obedience. But, but there's one way that's really relevant to what we're talking about today, and it's in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. What does Jesus say? He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and what? Take up their cross daily and follow me. This is before Jesus went to the cross. And yet his disciples would have known exactly what he was talking about because they would have seen this procession, right? They would have seen this humiliation. They would have seen other criminals who walked the Via Dolorosa out to Golgotha. Disgraced, humiliated. And Jesus said, you got to do that. Not literally, but actually denying yourself. That humiliating and brutal thing that you see the Romans doing is something I want you to do every day through the practice of self-denial. I told you we're talking about unpopular stuff today. Shame. And now we're talking about probably the most unpopular part of discipleship, which is self-denial. I think in our culture, in our time, Portland, Oregon, uh, whatever year it is, 2024, this is probably like the least appealing thing about following Jesus. We live in a culture, we live in a time when self is absolutely idolized. Live your best life now, right? Instagram, TikTok, your friends, they're all living their best life now and they're making you feel crappy and you're like, I want that too. So go live your best life now, right? That's, that's our culture. That's, that's the attitude that we are, that's where we find ourselves. And so this idea of self-denial, that Jesus did not call us to live our best life. He did not call us to, happiness on our terms. He calls us to deny ourselves and to follow Him. This is why people, a lot of people don't want to follow Jesus. Because this is just, that's too hard. And carrying a cross, pretty hard. I mean, this is, this is difficult stuff. He wants us to deny ourselves in a decisive fashion. That's why He compares it to carrying a cross. He wants us to put to death the things that are part of our earthly nature. And, and as hard as that is, there's, there's really good news in this. Because the cross we carry is not the cross of guilt and shame. Jesus has already carried that cross. The cross that we carry is the cross of holiness. The cross to become more like Him. C.H. Spurgeon, I love this quote. He said, you have to bear the cross, but not the curse. Your Lord endured both the cross and the curse. But to you, there is not so much as a drop of divine anger 
in all that you are suffering. Your Lord sends you a cross, but not a crush. I love that. The cross Jesus commands us to carry does not crush us. It changes us. It transforms us. For as Jesus surrendered to the cross, we surrender our will to His. We yield our hearts to His. This can be hard. This can be painful. But in a transformative way. Self-denial leads us to becoming people who are more generous, more patient, more content, more courageous, more loving, more like Jesus. Self-denial, fundamentally, what is it? It's about changing our relationship with ourself. It's about changing our relationship with ourself. It's not about ignoring ourself or hating ourself. I understand that the women, many of the women from this year are at a, a retreat, and they're actually learning about themselves, doing Enneagram work. And that's great work. Um, when we hear deny yourself, we think, oh no, you, you should hate yourself. You should shun yourself. Everything about yourself is bad. And we can, no, actually, it's really healthy to get to know ourselves because self denial is about shifting my primary relationship from myself to Jesus. But when I know myself, I can see where myself and Jesus are at odds. Right? So I can see myself and go, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't measure up. Or this, this doesn't match the goodness of Jesus. This motivation is dark. And um, it feels shameful to even say it or to acknowledge it, but I'm not going to let myself call the shot on that anymore. I'm going to submit that to Jesus, surrender it to Jesus, and and let Him be the one who calls the shots in my life. Let Him be my primary relationship. Let Him be first. That's self-denial. So, we learn things about ourselves. We see where we're at odds with Jesus' heart, with His will, and we see how naturally those things rule over us. Only then can we make the shift. Only then can we say, Jesus, not my will, but yours. So we talked about cross-carrying today and we talked about some hard stuff. And I hope that what you see as we, as we reflect on, on God's Word and, and what we've heard today is that cross-carrying, both Jesus' cross-carrying and our cross-carrying is good because it makes us more like Him. It makes us more like Him. So I want to invite the, the band to come back up. And as they do, I want you to go back to the picture on the screen. Just imagine Jesus bearing the cross. See the humiliation the disgrace. See Jesus taking that, physically taking the cross beam, but also all the insults and hardship and humiliation that that represented. See Him carrying all that. 
And then I just want to leave you with a few questions as you, as you think about that scene. And if it helps, you can close your eyes. The first question, what do you, what do you notice? What do you notice? Second question is, what is Jesus inviting you to? What's His invitation? And then finally, how is He calling you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Him? God, as we sit meditating on Your disgrace, speak to us now. We thank You for making us holy. We thank You for being a voice that never condemns, but loves and invites. And we thank you for the cross and your work there. We commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen.